All right, good morning. Good to have you all here. A special welcome to those in the simulcast. Good to have you here as well. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Stefan Dirksen, pastor of the Four Winds Ministry. Is that awesome what God is doing there? Isn't that amazing? It's more than just a building, it's transformed lives. I think that is incredible. That's the vision, it's His vision. Uh, before you get into, or before I get into the message today, I thought I'd start with giving some practical tips that I learned from my last time preaching here. And if you remember, if you're new here, you may not know this, but last October I preached uh, two messages on freedom in Christ. And uh, afterwards I had people coming and telling me, you know, they enjoyed the message, which was good, it feels good. And I had probably four or five people come and tell me they enjoyed the message, but they, they got sick. And, uh, and they shared that with me. I was like, oh, like, <laughs> I didn't realize I was that good of a preacher. I mean, the first time I go and preach, I mean, I did such a good job that you felt so much conviction you felt sick. <laughs> and, uh, and they said, no, 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 like, not conviction, like, like I felt sick. What, what do you mean you felt sick? Uh, they felt motion sickness. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, last time I preached, now I've gotten a little better for today, but apparently last time I preached, I stalked back and forth like a lion. So, especially for those in the simulcast, apparently the camera guy lost me a couple times, but the screen's just like panning back and forth like so. So, I figured I'd start by giving you some practical tips for what you can do if you feel motion sickness. And how, how you can tell you have motion sickness is if you feel disoriented at all or, or faint or nauseated or, or dizzy, any of those symptoms, it's, it's motion sickness. And what you can do is this, you're sitting and you can put your elbows on your knees and rest your head in your hands like this. The floor won't move. And now you'll see, you can see my ears, right? You can still hear everything that I'm saying. So if you need to take a little break that way, I won't be offended as long as you don't stick your fingers in your ears. Okay, if I see this, that'll hurt my feelings. All right. So enough of that, I'll get uh, more serious now. Uh, over the next two weeks, I'm going to be speaking to you on repentance. Now, immediately when I say the word repentance, I'm pretty sure, you know, everyone in here, or most of us in here, are familiar with the word or the term repent. And the reason for this is because we find it throughout the entirety of Scripture. Uh, we, we sing about it in songs. We read about it in books. We've heard it, you know, in sermons. I mean, it's a common theme for us as believers. And over the last, you know, uh, three years, I guess it's almost been that I've worked here, um, I've gotten to speak to many people, groups on repentance at, at encounters and powers, um, but I've also spoken to many individuals on repentance, doing personal ministry sessions and other conversations that I've had. And what I found is, although most believers are familiar with the term, many of us are actually struggling with knowing what it actually means to repent and how important it actually is for us as believers. And I've been in sessions where I've talked to someone and he's bearing to me his burden and, you know, he's been struggling in an area which is a good thing, that's what you should do, right? And uh, he's confessing it to me and I just asked, well, have you confessed this to the Lord? And immediately the response was, yeah, I've already confessed and I've repented. And I said, well, good, well, what steps, you know, how have you repented? And then I've gotten the kind of, the blank look, like, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? How have I repented? Like, what does that mean? So he didn't realize there was something attached to it. And I've been in other sessions where, you know, I've had individuals go on about, yeah, I've already done this, 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 and this. So I've already confessed, I've repented, see, I've done all the steps. But you look over a long period of time, and there seems to be little or no change. There's no fruit. They're, they're stuck. They're in the same place. And the reason is because repentance is more than just acknowledging your sin, and it's also more than just taking steps to avoid falling into sin. 
right? True repentance begins with a change of mind. And from here, it begins to affect every area of the penitent person. And it, 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 true repentance will actually change the very direction and course of your life. I believe the lack of repentance in the church has resulted in many believers being undistinguishable compared to the world around them. Right? We have Christian men and women who struggle with the same sins, the same bondages, live for themselves the same way, you know, the same broken relationships as the unbelievers. Right? This is a problem. This is actually a really big deal. I mean, think about this. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught us to not hide our light under a basket. Right? He said we are to be the city on the mountain glowing in the night for all to see. So picture yourselves. You're in Stymac. Everything's dark, right? And on top of Abe's Hill, we're supposed to be that city on top of Abe's Hill. You can see it throughout all of the region, right? That picture, think about that. That's the picture that we are supposed to be, the church is supposed to be to the unbelievers to the world around us. So what happens when our lives look just as black as everyone else? Are people going to be attracted to the light that is supposed to be prevalent in the body of the church? I don't think they will, right? But if we truly repent of our sins and turn to God, right, the light will shine through even within our weaknesses, and I'll show you how this works. Actually, before I do that, I want to give a caveat. Um, You may be thinking right now, are you implying that we have to be perfect? I'm not implying perfection. Remember the last time I spoke, I spoke on freedom in Christ, and my point there was God brings us on a journey. From, from A to B to C to D. He doesn't go from A to Z overnight. My point is this, though. When we engage on this journey and in this process, it should be visible to everyone else. That's my point, all right? Now, my wife, Louise, gave her life to Christ just over eight years ago. And my, my parents led her to the Lord. And uh, she's a faster learner than me. She gave her life to Christ eight months before I did. And when she did that, I mean, I really admire the step that she took. And the reason is because for me, when I became a Christian, I was really going back to what I already knew. All right, so I had walked away. My family, I was raised in a great home, a good environment. I had turned away for 10 years, and then I was coming back now to that good environment. I knew what what was in store for me, right? So it wasn't as much. I was leaving behind junk and going to where I knew blessing was. My wife, on the other hand, she comes from a family of unbelievers. There is no believers in her family. Uh, She has grandparents um, that followed Catholicism a little bit, but there was no vibrant faith there, and there's no aunts or uncles or family members, you know, parents or siblings that believe in Jesus. So when she chose to leave behind everything else, she was leaving behind a lot more than me. She was going into the unknown a lot more than I was. So it was a big step. And, and it's, it's interesting now, over the last eight years, some pretty amazing things have happened. Now, before I share with you what those things are, it's important to realize, again, like I said, no one's perfect. My wife isn't perfect. She's on the same journey that all of us are on or should be on, right? Uh, but this is what's happened. Despite imperfections, her family has noticed a difference in her. See, they've seen something and they find it attractive. This is what they said a couple of years ago. We're not ready to say that we believe in God or we don't believe in God. Right? We're not saying it's God. However, whatever you're doing and that church south and whatever they're doing there, we see that it's working. Is that amazing? Despite imperfections. This is what I'm talking about. When we engage on this, pro- pro- on, this, on this process, right? When we repent of our old lives, when we repent of our sins and turn to God and choose to walk in faith, it is visible to the unbelievers and, it be- and they become attracted to the gospel. They become attracted to Christ in us. Today we're going to begin by laying the foundation for repentance. And this will start with defining what is repentance. 
What does it mean to repent? And from there, we're going to look at um, three reasons why repentance is necessary for all of us as believers. So I'm going to pray then, and we'll just start right there. Heavenly Father, we just want to begin by declaring that you are good. And we thank you that you are unchanging. And because of that, there are so many things that, I mean, in a world of so much uncertainty, and we're not sure what, you know, the financial market will do tomorrow. We're not sure, you know, what the weather will bring, or we're not sure, you know, if sickness or death is going to touch us really close to home. We don't know any of those things. But you are unchanging. We can stand on the rock of who you are and know that that rock will never move. Jesus, we thank you that you've given us that type of security in our lives. And Jesus, I thank you for all of those that got baptized this weekend. It was an incredible thing watching them commit their lives to you and take this journey, this new step of laying down their lives publicly before everyone else and choosing to pick up their cross and follow you. I thank you for that. And God, now I just pray for all of us here. Would you open up our hearts and our minds and our spirits to receive your truth? And I ask that you would speak through me powerfully. And I ask Jesus that you would minister to each one of us. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said earlier, you're going to find the message of repentance spoken of throughout the entirety of Scripture. From Old Testament to New Testament uh, to Jew and Gentile, you'll find the message of of repentance being proclaimed. Um, I've just given a few verses here. We'll go to Psalms 51, 16 to 17. In the Psalms, David proclaims that a broken and repentant heart is more important to God than even sacrifice. This is what it says. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. This is David's response to committing adultery and murder. Right? If ever there was a time that we think that God would want just a sacrifice and and God showed David, no, I don't, even now, it's not just sacrifice that I want. I want you to be broken about what you've done. I want you to feel the weight of your sin and then with that weight, then I want you to turn, repent, and turn to me. This is God's desire for us. I'll move forward to the New Testament. We find uh, right off the bat, John the Baptist comes preaching boldly the message of repentance. Matthew 3, 1 to 2. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He told the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came to watch that they were to prove by the way that they lived that they had repented of their sins and turned to God meaning it should be tangible, right? He's saying that you have to do something with repentance. Um, In Matthew 4, this is Jesus now. He's just been baptized. John's baptized him, and the Holy Spirit's descended on on him in the form of a dove, and then he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. Now he comes back, and he begins his public ministry. And what do we find Jesus preaching the very first thing? It says, From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's preaching the same thing John did. Right? This is God's heart to us. Repent of our sins and turn to him. This is an important message throughout the entirety of Scripture. So what exactly is repentance? What does it mean to repent? Well, our dictionary defines it as deep sorrow, compunction, or contrition for a past sin, wrongdoing, or the like. Regret for any past action. In the biblical Hebrew, the idea of repentance is represented by two verbs, shuv and nichem, meaning to feel sorrow and to return. So how it was used and how it was applied was you feel sorrow for your sin, then you return to God. Right? That's how they were using it. In the New Testament, the word translates, translated as repentance is the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia is primarily an afterthought, different from the former thought, or 
Metanoia is a change of mind accompanied by regret and change of conduct. So we can say repentance is a change of mind accompanied by regret and change of conduct. This is what repentance is. So it begins here, right? Then it, then it moves to sorrow and regret because we realize what we've done is wrong. And then the change of conduct is the result of that. Now with this definition in mind, it's still important to realize something. Scripture still speaks of two kinds of repentance. All right? One that leads to death. That's bad, right? And the other that leads to life or salvation. All right? So it's really important that we get this right, that we repent in the right heart. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Both worldly grief and godly grief are forms of repentance. In both cases, you'll feel regret for a past wrong. In both cases, right? In both cases, you may even take one step, two steps, many steps to ensure you don't fall into that same sin again. The defining difference is the heart behind why you feel this way. With worldly sorrow, you feel sorrow for your sin or regret for your sin because you realize it has been ruinous to your own soul. It's affected you negatively and that bothers you, so you try to turn from that sin because you don't want to experience that pain any longer. Whereas with godly sorrow, this is the difference, you feel sorrow over your sin because you realize it has been offensive towards God. And that simply won't do because you declare that you love him. Do you see the difference? That's the difference. Today when we talk about, and I'm going to go into right away, three reasons repentance is necessary and why we need it. What I'm referring to is the repentance that comes from godly sorrow. Okay, I'm not referring to the worldly sorrow one on this weekend. Next weekend I will actually be talking about worldly sorrow and what that actually looks like and how, we can, how, do, how do we know if we're worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. We're going to discuss that next week. For now, though, I'm going to continue by laying the foundation for why repentance is so important for each of us as believers. So I'll give you three reasons that it's necessary. Repentance is necessary for the forgiveness of your sins. Right? That's reason number one. There's many scriptures I could give you to support this, but I've just chosen four. And we'll start with this. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If... Right? We have to do something, then we receive forgiveness. Acts 5.31 Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. You see the two together again. Acts 2.38 And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. That's what many people did this weekend. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, we'll, we'll look at the Old Testament, Jeremiah 36.3. Perhaps the people of Judah will repent when they hear again all the terrible things I have planned for them. Then I will be able to forgive their sins and wrongdoings. Right? God is pleading with them to repent so he can forgive them. He desires, to, he desires mercy. He desires, but we have to do something still. Okay? Now I know this point here, this one's easy for us to swallow here at Southland, and, that, and the reason behind that is, is we've heard this message before. Right? If you've been to one of our retreats, this is exactly what we go through at the encounter. Right? You go through checking off all your sins, and then we confess those sins to God and we receive His forgiveness. So I don't have to convince you on that point. Most of us are already on, on board with that. But this being said, there's still been two responses that I've heard and that I've seen um, in response to confession, this whole idea of confessing sins and repenting from them that have really troubled me, and I'm going to share them with you now. In the first response, I've talked to Christians and heard, heard them say that, 
there is no need for confession and repentance. The reason for saying this is this. To imply you have to confess and repent, that's like doing something, is to cheapen what, the price that Jesus paid on the cross. Right? You're saying that what Jesus did, his commitment to us, that it wasn't good enough. You're adding to it. You're saying that it's, it's now about us and not about him. These are the same people that often tell me, Jesus loves me no matter what I do, and that means I don't have to do anything to change my sinful attitudes and natures. Right? If Jesus wants them to change, then Jesus can go ahead and change them. Okay, this is the attitude. Now, I've already shown you four scriptures, and I could give you more, right, that prove this theology to be wrong. Right? Scripture is very clear on, on the means by which we receive forgiveness, that it, it does require your action, right? But I actually want to appeal to you on the side of logic and show you why logically this argument doesn't make any sense. Uh, June 11th, 2004, me and my wife stood on this very stage, and we made our marriage vows together. All right? So we entered into a covenant that's almost eight years ago. Oh, in a week, yeah. Almost eight years ago. She's not here, so it's okay that I said that. <laughs> I don't like write myself a quick note, eh? Don't forget anniversary. Anyways, <laughs> maybe someone else wants to remind me after, and then I'll write it then. Anyways, um, so... Uh, <laughs> Anyways, so we stood up here, and I was really excited to get married, and, there, and, and I wasn't saved yet. My wife had given her life to Christ already. I was still an unbeliever, but even as an unbeliever, I recognized the importance of a marriage covenant. I realized that if I enter into this marriage covenant with this woman, that she will be locked in with me for life, okay? And, and the prospect of this really excited me uh, because, I, I mean, she was everything that I wanted in a wife. All right, so I'm up here, and you know, she must have been thinking the same thing, like, I'm so lucky, you know, they had to marry Stephanie and that kind of stuff. And I mean, that's understandable, but, but anyhow, <laughs> we stood here giving our marriage vows together, all right? So we have this covenant relationship together. She vowed to be with me no matter what. I vowed to be with her no matter what happened, okay? Now, this last March, uh, we had the opportunity to go to the marriage retreat, and it was amazing. And leading up to, to going to the retreat for the weeks that, that were, you know, coming up to, you know, we had signed up and now we're waiting, we were both anticipating God doing something really big in our marriage, right? We already knew kind of what was going on there because we got the inside scoop just a little bit. And we knew that we'd be challenged on things that you were doing wrong, right? We knew it would be exposing bad behavior, but we also knew that we would be learning how to, you know, we would learn how we tick so that we can better love each other, right? So that we can fulfill each other's needs better. And to me and my wife and to all of us here at this church, I'm sure, um, it's very important for us to give the gift of a good marriage to our kids and we want to give that gift to each other as well. So we were excited by the prospect of going to this retreat. And so we went and it didn't disappoint. I mean, I feel like our marriage has gone to the next level. Uh, but something happened at that retreat. We were going through one of the sessions and it's called the Love Buster session. And just a basic description of a Love Buster, you have to go there to get the full description. But the basic description is, uh, it's, it's stuff that you do that takes deposits out of the other spouse's love tank, right? So it's, it's the bad things that you do in marriage. And there's a whole list of them that he's listing off, and you're, you know, marking things down, and you're, because you're kind of testing each other and yourself, right, and seeing how you guys are doing. And then you share it at the end. There's practicum. It's awesome. And we're marking it down. They're going through the descriptions, and it got to a certain one called disrespectful judgments. Now, it got to this one, and this one out of the whole list that I saw looked to me to be the worst one. So I assumed that I wouldn't be struggling with it because, I mean, I'm not that bad of a guy, right? So I'm like, well, this one, I don't know what it means, disrespectful judgments, but it sounds pretty brutal. And uh, Pastor Ray went on to explain what exactly a disrespectful judgment is, and, and it's when he began explaining what it was that I started feeling conviction inside. And what he started saying is, someone who struggles with disrespectful judgment uses manipulation to get their own way. 
So what they'll do is there'll be an argument or a fight or they won't get their own way and they'll often turn the tables, manipulating, turning the tables and they'll often try to make it seem like it's the other person's fault for whatever's happened so that they can in turn get their own way. And the second he said this, I realized and I felt the Holy Spirit convicting me, this is exactly what I had been doing to my wife in our marriage. I felt so terrible at that moment. I felt so broken, and I want, to, I want to point something out. I did not feel broken because she pointed out something in me that I hadn't seen. I felt broken because, like, it wasn't just because I was caught, is what I'm saying. I felt broken because I realized I had hurt someone that I care about very, very deeply. Right? And the thought of me hurting her in any way bothers me. It bothers me greatly, okay? So I, didn't even, I couldn't wait for the, the, the practicum. Right, I knew that was coming up and we were, gonna, we were gonna practice everything and apply it. I couldn't wait. I elbowed her in the side, which I know is bad, but I couldn't wait. It's probably, I should have confessed that too, I'm sure. But I elbowed her and with, with tears in my eyes, I said, honey, I've been doing this to you for years and I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? Can you forgive me? And she said yes and I have since made, uh, taken many steps to ensure, and I made a, it's a conscious effort to ensure that I, no longer ever, uh, that I no longer use manipulation in any of our talks, especially when we fight, which is very rarely, of course. I mean, once a year, maybe, especially since the marriage retreat. But, so it hasn't happened yet, but I've made it a, no, I'm kidding. It's happened a couple times, right? But my point is, especially when we have fights or arguments, I have to make a conscious decision, do not manipulate your wife. She has a valid opinion and a valid, she, she is valid, right? And her, whatever her stance is, is important too, right? You got to work this thing out normally, right? Anyhow, this is my point. Suppose, I mean, we look at this and say, well, that's really bad that you were doing that. That's terrible, Stefan. But at least you did something about it, right? I mean, at least then, I mean, it shows there's promise. There's hope for me to change in the future, right? Because I can recognize a wrong and try to make it right. Now, suppose I'd gotten to this point in the story where I'd said, I realized that I had sinned against my wife. And I had said, this was my response. Good thing she made a commitment to me, otherwise I might have to worry about trying to change myself. What would you have thought about what type of person I am? Would your response have been, oh, I mean, amen, Stefan, that's exactly how you should feel, because had you gone and, and tried to make it right, you'd have been showing her that you don't value her commitment to you. Would you have said that? Would you have thought that I cared about my wife? Would you thought that I care about my marriage? <laughs> Probably not. Would you believe it if I said I, I, I cared about myself, if that had been my response? Yeah. That's about the only thing that you would believe I cared about, right? This is, this, like, when I realized I hurt my wife and I apologized, I showed her that I honored the commitment she made to me and that I made to her. I did not cheapen it in any way, did I? That didn't cheapen a thing. Okay, this is the same with our relationship with God. When we realize we've offended our Lord, our first response should be to confess our sin and then to take steps to ensure we don't re-offend because we love him, because we care about him and we don't want to offend him, all right? Confession and repentance does not cheapen the blood of Jesus. Christ's blood is still the only means, hear me on that, it's the only means by which we can be pardoned of our sins, period. I'm not adding to that. All I'm saying is to receive such a wonderful gift, you have to confess your sins and, and be willing to repent of them and then you receive that pardoning. It's still a miraculous gift that he is willing to forgive us because the wages of our sin should be death. Okay, I'm not, I'm not adding to anything. I'm just saying there's a process to getting there. 
all right? Now, the second response that's bothered me is with Christians who actually believe in confessing and repenting of their sins, but they approach confession and they approach their sin with a casual attitude, all right? They feel no brokenness over their sin. They don't feel sorrow over what they've done, all right? Remember the passage I shared earlier in Psalms 51, 16 to 17. We'll look at it again. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. This is exactly what David is communicating in this, in this passage, isn't it? This is exactly what he's getting at. Remember, he had just committed adultery and murder, right? And he's saying, don't be casual about your sin. God doesn't want us to be casual about our sin. It's not just go and offer a sacrifice, go and confess your sin quickly, and then move on with life. David's saying, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that what God wants is for us to feel brokenness over our sin. Now, in that brokenness, he wants us then to repent of that sin and to turn to him in faith. This is what God desires. That's why it says he won't, he won't despise someone who comes to him with a heart like that. He will honor them. He will lift them up. This is not out of duty, but out of love. Not duty, but out of love. 1 Peter 2.24, I'm going to read you two scriptures and I want you to really think about what I'm saying. 1 Peter 2.24, he personally, this is Jesus, carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, we are healed. Romans 5 verse 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Are you getting this? Jesus loved us while we were still sinners. He took all of our sins on his shoulders and paid our debt, our punishment, so that we could be dead to that old life and we could be alive in righteousness, alive in Christ Jesus in him. All right? When we realize we have sinned against this same Lord and Savior, how can our response be anything but brokenness? How can we approach that casually? Imagine if I had apologized to my wife like that and just been like, oh yeah, I guess I did that to you, eh? Sorry about that. Here I've been crushing her for years in arguments. And I'm just like, oh, sorry about that, not a big deal. It's a big deal. I've offended her. I've hurt her. This is the same with God. And then with that brokenness, we should then, in humility, because it takes humility to do this, in that brokenness, we should then confess our sins and repent, and we should turn from them and then receive the gift, the, the free gift, and his mercy and forgiveness and the cleansing from our sins. This is the only thing appropriate for believers. So let's look at the second reason that repentance is important. Repentance is necessary to mature in our faith. Many Christians wonder why they can't seem to get free of certain bondages or sin within their lives. Some of them maybe haven't taken any steps to be free, yet others seem to take, you know, step one, step two, step three, and there seems to be little to no, you know, movement. Right? You know, you look over the, the, the span of a few years or whatever it is, and you don't see any fruit. I mean, it's one thing to be on the process and you can see the progress, but it's a whole other thing when you feel like you're stuck in that process, there's no change, right? So why is it? I mean, what is at the root of, of why there's believers that seem stuck despite doing these steps? Well, I believe at the root of this is a lack of spiritual maturity. I think that's what causes us to continue to try and fail over and over and over again. Right? One of the easiest ways to see this immaturity is through their self-focus, their focus on themselves. And what I mean by this is this. Many of their decisions with free time, relationships, finances, you can fill in the blank, are going to be you know, motivated by their own wants and desires. 
And you can see what type of effect this has in their lives. It causes many broken relationships, ruins marriages, causes hardship at work, right? And it causes us to struggle in bondages of sin, right? And see little to no victory, okay? Um, and if not addressed, this, this can actually result in our hearts growing cold to God, which is an even more serious one, right? If we don't, if, if we don't actually mature, our hearts will eventually be, go, grow cold and they will harden. Now, this process of maturing, you know, maturing in our faith, which I'm talking about here, is the same process we go to when we mature from babies into adulthood, all right? We start off and we're very full of a self-focus, and we end off and we become more and more selfless. It's the same, actually, it, it mirrors very closely, all right? And that's what I mean by this, okay? When we're babies, the whole world revolves around us, right? It's all about my wants, my desires, whatever I want, and if they need something, they cry, right? It could be even something very small. It's like anything they want, they just cry, right? You're like, wow, that's selfish, right? But they're babies, so it's okay. We, we forgive them because they don't know any better. That's where we all start, right? What should happen then is we begin, as we begin to mature is we begin to learn about other people's feelings, wants, and desires as well. We learn that other people are also important. The world doesn't just revolve around us, right? When we're toddlers, we teach little Johnny to share his truck with his friend, and he may do so begrudgingly in the beginning with tears, right? But as we continue pushing it on, he begins to do it out of, he begins to desire to bless others and to make them feel good, not just himself. This process continues as we become teenagers and adolescents and then adulthood. This is the same process we're on. And if you want to get married, if you're married already, you'll know that it gets accelerated once you get married, right? Suddenly, like, you don't have the, the right to choose anything really. Right? All of this has to be done together. It's a partnership, right? You have to always think about your spouse. And then when you have kids, you put kids into that mix, and it just continues that process on. You become more and more selfless. Or we could say, you learn to die to self. Sound familiar? Same process we're in when we're maturing in our faith. In the beginning, right, all we're thinking about is us, right? As we mature in our faith, what we're doing is this. We're laying down our wants, our desires, our dreams, our lives before Jesus. We're picking up our crosses and we're beginning to live for his wants, his desires, his dreams, right? We're dying to the self-focus and we're starting to live more and more selfless. This is the, this is the process of maturity, in the scriptures, we see a really good example of a lack of maturity and its consequences in the story of Jacob and Esau. Genesis 25, 29 to 34. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, First, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then it says, Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Excuse me. There we go. little bubble of gas. Anyhow, <laughs> might as well take some water at that same time. Don't lose the point here, okay? Keep on the verse. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So what has just happened here in this story? Well, we see a lack of maturity or we demonstrated in, in Esau by his focus on himself. Is Esau thinking in his decision to trade his, his, uh, his, the rights to the firstborn to Jacob, is he thinking about God in his decision? Not at all. Is he thinking about his father? Not even a little bit. I mean, think of what his father would have thought about that. Is he thinking about the rest of his family? No. 
Is he thinking about the future ramifications of his decision and how it may affect others? No. The only thing Esau is thinking about is the fact that he is hungry and exhausted. He's thinking, this is a fleshy need and desire that I have right now, and he's willing to trade something that should be so important to him for something so small as a, as a bowl of soup. Now, before we, like, I mean, we can look at this and say, Esau, like that is so foolish, right? And it is foolish, but we look at this and say, Esau, like what a foolish decision. At least, I mean, at least if you're going to trade away the rights to the firstborn, at least you should have made some type of deal with Jacob that he should make you three meals a day for the next 20 years, right? I mean, that would still be a bad deal, but that's better than one meal. Like you gave all of that, the rights to the firstborn, think about this, all of the inheritance from the family goes down to the firstborn. The rights to lead in all areas, matters of spiritual or any other areas, is, it, it falls on the firstborn. This is the greatest honor that someone can receive, the right of the firstborn child. And Esau is willing to trade all of that for something that only gives him temporary satisfaction. And you say, what a fool, Esau. But before we're too quick to judge Esau, let me ask you a question. How many Christians today are doing the same thing? How many Christians are destroying or shipwrecking their faith and destroying their witness for the Lord by giving in to their fleshy needs through sexual impurity, mishandling of finances, and a host of other sins? How many? This is a tragedy. This is a tragedy, right? Why are so many believers willing to trade so much? Look what we're given as sons and daughters of the Most High King. We have access to the throne room. We have salvation, we have him walking with us through anything. I mean, what a covenant relationship we're entering into and we're willing to trade so much for so little so easily for a single bowl of soup. I believe this is in large part due to the lack of spiritual maturity. So the question becomes, what is keeping and what has kept people like Esau and what is keeping so many Christians in bondage where they can't seem to mature? Why are we stuck well, Hebrews 6 verse 1 seems to give us some insight into this very question. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we do not need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. The writer of Hebrews draws a direct correlation between our maturity and our placing an importance and applying repentance in our lives saying they're linked, they're two, they go hand in hand. So we look at this and say, well, why repentance? What is it about repentance that, that is linked to maturity? Well, think about it. Remember what I said. Maturity, the, the biggest thing we see on the path of maturity is self-focus, learning to become more and more selfless. It's one of the most defining things you'll see on the, on the path of maturity, right? What does repentance call us to do? True repentance calls us to die to our self or our self-focus and begin living for another. In this case, true repentance calls us to live for Christ. It's the same thing. That's why we see the parallels. Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with many tears. Far too many Christians today are willing to exchange their birthright for a moment of sexual pleasure or for selfish gain. 
On the contrary, though, when we live in such a manner where we bear the fruit of repentance in our lives, what happens is this. We begin to mature in our faith. We access the grace needed to withstand temptation. And we can ensure that we don't make the same foolish decisions that Esau made. Plus, we're better able to fulfill the callings that God has placed on our lives. So let's look at the third reason that repentance is necessary to believers. Repentance is necessary for salvation. Now, Scripture teaches us that we have to believe in order to receive the promise of salvation. It says, believe and you will receive. But it also teaches that we are to bear the fruit of repentance in our lives if we are to receive the fruition of that promise. Now, many Christians have a problem with this idea because they say, you're saying I have to do something and that's works salvation. They say all we need is faith. And what they mean by that is all you have to do is believe that Jesus existed and believe that he was who he said he was and you will be saved. All right? Well, what, are the, what does the scriptures have to teach us about this very thing? Romans 2, 4 to 8. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury." What is Paul telling us here? He says the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. First off, that's amazing. That God would use kindness to lead us to turn from our sin and to turn from our lives and to turn to him is incredible because he could use whatever he wants because he's God. So we thank you, God, for that, right? But then Paul goes on to say, if we respond to that kindness by turning to God in repentance, then we will receive the promise of salvation. But then he warns us on the same note, if we refuse to repent and turn to him, that we will suffer wrath and fury. So let's look at some other scriptures here that seem to talk about the same thing. We'll look at 2 Corinthians 7. And uh, here, um, I'll just give you some background so you understand where I'm jumping into in the verse. But Paul has been made aware that the Corinthian church is struggling in sin, so he writes them a corrective letter. And he's worried about how they're going to respond to this corrective letter. Are they going to respond and repent, or are they going to you know, wallow in it and then lose their salvation, is what he's worried for right? And then what happens is they respond in a really godly way. So now he's writing his response to that because he's pleased with what they did. Look what they did. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So here Paul is saying to believers that we can feel sorrow for our sin, but unless we, with that sorrow, then repent and turn to God, right, leading back to salvation, then we will then in turn lead us into death, right? It's a stiff warning. Let's look at some more passages. Luke 3, 8 to 9. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Once again, we see in this passage, Paul is, is declaring to us, right, that, or it's not Paul here, but this passage is telling us that as believers, we had better bear the fruit of repentance in our lives. What does he mean by this? It should be tangible. It's something that you should see. Others should take notice. 
that we are doing this, right? And he goes on to warn us again that failure to do this, failure to produce this fruit will result in us being cut down and thrown into the fire, meaning we can forfeit our inheritance. I'll give you one more passage here and then we'll move on. And, uh, and in this passage, Luke 13, Jesus is, is talking to a group of men who are, who are asking him a question. And what they're asking him is uh, an accident had occurred to some Galilean men. And they're thinking, does this mean because this accident occurred and, and they died that they were worse sinners than the rest of us, right? Was it because they, they didn't repent? Look at Jesus' response. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? Not at all, and you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. Right? And just in case we missed that message, he goes on to say in verse 4, And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Shalom fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. I love that. Not once, but twice. In the same, you know, in the same message that he's talking to these guys on, he makes the point very, very clear. All sin is equal. I look at everyone the same. Unless each one of us repents and turns from our sins and places our faith in God, we too will perish. Now I know there still may be some in here that are feeling a bit uncomfortable with this. And the reason is we've been raised to believe that all you need to do to be saved is believe in Jesus. And what we mean by that is just like I said before, it means you just believe in Jesus, so you believe he exists, and then Jesus takes care of the rest. We don't have to worry about it. We receive our promised inheritance. So where does this confusion come from? It comes from the fact that Scripture talks about two kinds of belief. Right? We have one kind of belief. Scripture talks about two kinds of belief. And uh, Romans 10 verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, is that an awesome verse or what? Like, that verse is amazing. Like, what a promise. Not by works so that no man should boast, right? But by faith alone. Thank you, Jesus, right? That all we, ta- that all we need is faith, right? And we look at that, and that is an incredible promise. I love that verse. But what about James 2, 18 to 26? What about James 2? You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, I've given you five passages that seem to support us having to do something in works in order to be saved. And now we have this other verse that says all we need to do is believe. And we look at this and we say, why? There's a lot of confusion that comes out of these passages. Which one is it? Is it one or the other? Well, Clearly we know this, and we believe this here at Southland, Scripture will never contradict itself, right? God is one, God doesn't change his mind, God is truth, so everything within the Scriptures has to line under that truth, so it all has to work together. So what exactly is Paul saying in Romans 10 verse 9? Well, I believe Paul is saying this, if you believe, you will receive the promise of salvation. I don't argue with that at all. The problem is when we define the word belief, what does it mean? That's the problem, okay? What he's not talking about is a mere intellectual belief. You say, what is intellectual belief? And I'll show you what that is, okay? Does everyone in here believe that I exist? You believe I exist? All right, you can see me. You may have talked to me before, right? I know a lot of you. You believe I exist, right? All right, before I said I was the pastor of Four Winds Ministry, do you believe me? Okay, you believe me. I'm I'm also Pastor Ray's son. Do you believe me? All right, so what you're saying is you believe 100% that I exist and you believe 100% that I am who I say I am. Are you agreeing? 
All right, if your belief in Jesus is that real, but goes no further than that, this is intellectual belief, according to the scriptures, you will not be saved, you will not receive the promise of salvation. This is exactly what James is referring to in James 2 when he said this, you say you have faith for you believe there is one God. Good for you, even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. They're not going to be in heaven with us, are they? Do you think they believe Jesus is who he says he is? Oh, they believe, right? And they listen when we use his name, right? We know they believe. They respect that authority, but they won't be there with us. That's intellectual belief, right? It doesn't go further. So what is the belief that saves? Well, the belief that saves is a synonym with another word that we're very, very familiar with. And that word is obedience. It's a synonym with obedience. So the, the word belief in the scriptures in many places, not all, but in many places, you can, is, is interchangeable with the word obedience. So belief, obedience, you can swap the two words out and it means the same thing. Let me show you this in scripture. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Okay? Here, Jesus is talking about obedience. Now, was Paul arguing with Jesus in Romans 10? Is Paul saying Jesus didn't know what he was talking about? All you have to do is believe. You don't have to obey. No, they're not arguing. They're saying the same thing. The words just mean the same thing, so they're interchangeable. They're synonyms. Are you following? Does that make sense? They're synonyms. So they go back and forth, right? Understanding this is actually going to help you as you read through your Bible. I mean, in the Old Testament, God is often accusing the Israelites of their unbelief. Now, if it was really that they didn't believe God existed, why is it that every time calamity struck, they come running back to him? See, their problem wasn't that they didn't believe he existed. They believed in his existence. Their problem was they didn't see their need to follow him and obey him. That was the problem that God was contending with them with. Okay? I'm going to show you this in two more places, and then we'll move on. Well, actually, well, then we'll, then we'll be uh, closing up here. Uh, Hebrews 3, 18 to 19. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Okay, so we see the word disobedient. So disobedience disqualifies you from rest. And he goes on to say the same thing again. So we see that they were unable to enter because of, oh, what's the word? Unbelief. Oh, well, he's saying the same thing using the words interchangeably. They're synonyms. They mean the same thing. This isn't a, an error in the Bible. If they just mean the same thing, so it's okay. Hebrews 4, moving one chapter further, 1, 3, and 6. God's promise of entering his rest still stands, so we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. So he's making, the writer of Hebrews is making a point. It's really important that all believers get into this promised place of rest, right? We all have to get there. Then he goes on in verse 3 to say, how do we get there? So what's the qualifications? We all want to know, right? It's so important to be there. He says, for only we who believe can enter his rest. All right, so what do we need to do to enter his rest? Believe, right? Is that what he said? Believe, all right? Well, let's look at verse 6. So God's rest is there for people to enter, which we just, we just read that. But those who first heard the good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. Not because of disbelief, but because they disobeyed. You see here again, so he's using them as the converse, but they're still synonyms. They mean the same thing. This isn't an error. This is what belief means, okay? So are we saved when we believe in Jesus, yes or no? Yes. Yes, I am not arguing with that. I agree with that 100%. Thank you, Jesus, that it's not up to my works, that I'm saved by faith, okay? But believing in Jesus looks different than just acknowledging that he exists. He's still functional Lord. When our belief results in our own recognition of our sinfulness and desperate need of a Savior and in turn 
results in us choosing him over everything else in our lives, committing to be faithful to him alone, then our belief results in us receiving the promise of salvation. That's what it looks like. That's the belief that saves. Isn't that beautiful? Right? Isn't that good to know? Okay, this is, isn't this what faith is anyways? I mean, Hebrews 11 says faith is believing in what is unseen. Doesn't it make sense then to receive this promise by faith? It would involve us letting go of everything that is seen, you know, our lives, our thoughts, our desires, our dreams, laying all of those down and holding on to an unseen promise and listening to an unseen God. Wouldn't that only make sense? It's by faith, right? It's by faith. This is also true of the nature of repentance. You'll find many parallels actually between the belief that saves and repentance that leads to salvation. They're very, very similar on a lot of different levels. True repentance is this, recognizing your own depravity and your great need for God and then thoroughly turning from all areas of sin and turning to God. When we do this and turn to him with all of our might, right, turn away from the sin and turn to God with all of our might, then we access, like, we mature in our faith and we access the grace needed to withstand temptation. We also receive his forgiveness and cleansing, his mercy, Right? Isn't that amazing? We receive mercy and we can be confident that we will receive our promised inheritance. This is repentance. Next week I'm going to talk to you about uh, and, I, and I'll be speaking on how do we repent and like, what is, what, like where does it start and how do we get it right because it's more than just feeling bad about your sins. Remember I said that. It's more than just taking steps to avoid. It has to be for the right motive. We're going to talk about that next week but for now I want to close with a passage of scripture. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, what is that? Is that repentance? That's repentance, right? Look what he promises. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. What a promise for us here today, isn't that? Do you think the Canadian church and the church in the West needs to see the fruition of this promise in the church? We're dying for it. We're dying for it. And I believe if we heed the message of our Lord that we will receive the fruition of this promise. And remember what, the, and this is what I want to close with. What is the message of our Lord? To repent of our sins and to turn to him for the kingdom of heaven draws nigh. Bow your heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just worship you and thank you that you would choose to, to desire mercy over judgment. You desire to give us mercy. You desire to forgive us. All we need to do is to choose you and to be willing to turn from our old lives, to abandon what we were living and to choose to live for you. God, I pray that you would convict each and every one of us if there is areas in our lives that we are holding on to, that we are not surrendering to you. God, I ask that you would bring conviction because that is your mercy. Bring conviction. Don't let us shove it aside. And then would you lead us to repentance and would you lead us back to salvation? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.